there is absolutely no doubt in my mind um, that there continued to be not just predication, but even more reason to uh, question Flynn once you had the tapes of the phone calls with Kislyak and once you knew that Flynn had lied to the vice president, the incoming vice president, and other White House officials about the nature of those calls. If there's nothing wrong, why wouldn't you tell Vice President Pence the truth? And if there's something to hide, shouldn't the FBI figure out what that thing is? I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th, 2020. The Justice Department moved this week to dismiss the charges against Michael Flynn, a man who had pled guilty to lying to the FBI. It was an extraordinary move, one that provoked glee among the president's supporters and outrage among Justice Department traditionalists and critics of the president. We put together on Friday afternoon a discussion of the Justice Department's move and the rationale for it that it spelled out in a brief to the court. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare's managing editor, Susan Hennessy, our executive editor, and Chuck Rosenberg, a former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official who has held a number of other significant positions in the Justice Department. It's a wide-ranging conversation. What will happen now as Judge Sullivan considers the motion to dismiss? Can it be justified? How unusual was it? We covered it all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th, Dropping the Flynn Case. Quinta, I want to start with you because you are the person of my acquaintance who has, for your sins in life, spent the most time with this docket and the underlying materials. How would you briefly characterize the sequence of events that led to this week's Justice Department motion to dismiss the case against Michael Flynn? Thanks, Ben. It is a long story, so I will do my best to be brief, as you say. Essentially, Michael Flynn, as listeners probably remember, uh, pleaded guilty to one count of lying to federal investigators. At that point, he had a legal team from the law firm Covington and Burling. Due to a long chain of events involving the judge in Flynn's case essentially pushing forward his sentencing hearing, which had originally been scheduled for December 2018, Flynn eventually got rid of his legal team from Covington and Burling and hired another lawyer, Sidney Powell, who sort of quickly reversed Flynn's previous posture of cooperation with the federal government and moved toward a much more adversarial position, uh, filing motions suggesting that Flynn had been denied access to Brady material. So that's material that could potentially have exonerated him in the case, uh, filed motions to overturn his case and withdraw his plea. Those motions recently have been uh, supplemented with material provided by the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, Jeffrey Jensen, who was appointed by Attorney General Bill Barr to conduct a sort of ambiguous review of the Flynn prosecution. 
seemingly along similar lines as Barr appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham to review the Russia investigation. Jensen provided to Powell, to that is to Flynn's team, uh, some sort of internal deliberative FBI material about Flynn's case, which Powell had then been filing on the public docket. All of this leads up to yesterday, Thursday, when the Justice Department then turned around and said, actually, we would like to drop the charges against Flynn and sort of submitted a motion telling a story of Flynn's case that really aligns with the story that Powell has been telling that Flynn has been railroaded, the FBI was just out to get him, all all that kind of thing. So all of this is really a process of Flynn and the government being on the same page regarding Flynn's guilt, and then both of them flipping now to a posture that Flynn is innocent. Or at least that the government did not have a proper basis for the charge against him. So, Chuck, you have been a U.S. attorney in two separate districts. You've been in, you were a longtime AUSA. You've been a senior Justice Department official. Have you ever seen a case in which the Justice Department, having obtained a plea agreement with a defendant without acknowledging that the defendant is innocent or, you know, that there was sort of newly discovered substantive evidence and without alleging that there was any deprivation of his constitutional rights, walks into court and asks that the case that he pled guilty to be dismissed. Will a one-word answer suffice, Ben? Yeah. No. So... I have not either, as a, I've covered a lot of federal cases in a lot of jurisdictions, and I have never seen a brief like the one filed yesterday. I'm curious for your thoughts about how extraordinary it is and to what extent, to what extent it is defensible. So it's extraordinary to me in two ways. The first one we've already sort of framed and answered. I've never seen anything like it. But it's also extraordinary because the reasoning is completely vacuous, right? So you could imagine a situation in which the government genuinely believes, in good faith, that the prosecutors did something wrong, or there wasn't a material lie, or there was some procedural flaw, and they had to do this. I've not seen it, but you can imagine that. But the brief filed yesterday um, by the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Tim Shea, but note, uh, if you would, no career line AUSA in the office added his or her name to that document, which tells you something, was just made up. It didn't accurately state what happened. Um, the, The misstatements in the pleading were material. The characterization of Flynn's lies as immaterial were laughable. Um, And the so-called procedural flaws that Shea identified for Judge Sullivan don't matter at all. And there's so much so wrong with the government's pleading that it's hard to know where to start. All right. So let's figure out a place to start. And the place that I want to start and Susan, I'm just interested in your take on this. I 
want to start with the motivation of the Justice Department in doing this, because we're going to get into the details of everything momentarily. But the first and I think in some ways most important question is why the Justice Department did this. Can you think, Susan, of any explanation for this other than that the attorney general, apparently assisted by the U.S. attorney in Missouri, is trying to align the position of the Justice Department with the prejudices and instincts and rantings of the president? To borrow a line from Chuck, no. There isn't any other alternative explanation for why DOJ would be pursuing this very strange course of dropping charges against Flynn. I think it is plainly transparent, and and I don't think the Attorney General Bill Barr, in his interview with CBS, even made much of an effort to pretend as though it was something else. The Attorney General has been on a systematic campaign to undermine and discredit the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report. We've seen him attempt to do that through the John Durham review. We've seen him attempt to do that by intervening in Roger Stone's sentencing recommendations. We've seen it now with dropping the charges against Mike Flynn. Um, And so this is part of an ongoing campaign, a campaign I, I think that is potentially not yet over. There are still questions about what happens to Roger Stone, what happens to Paul Manafort, what happens to the existing sort of reviews, administrative reviews from here. But there's just no question that this is politically motivated and this is about protecting the president's political cronies and also offering the president a cudgel to go after his enemies by rewriting history to somehow suggest that nobody did anything wrong, um, even whenever they've admitted to criminal conduct. And instead, this was just a deep state plot, you know, to go after the president. Chuck, is Susan's account of this, you know, we often have a range of opinions as to how generous or ungenerously to interpret, you know, actions of uh, the administration or the, the, in this case, the Justice Department. Can you see an alternative, more charitable view of this than Susan does? Ben, I think I can articulate a more charitable view. I don't know that I would wholly believe it. Susan is, I'm afraid, correct. Uh, That pains me uh, because the Department of Justice that I knew, the Justice Department in which I grew up professionally, wasn't perfect and made its share of mistakes, but was never this nakedly political. Uh, I think Susan's right. I mean, can I advance a more charitable argument? Sure. The more charitable argument, which I don't believe, is that you take the pleading at face value. You um, point out that the predication was you know relatively thin and expiring because the uh, FBI had indicated it was about to close the case, and therefore that uh, the interview of Flynn was unnecessary, and therefore uh, the lies he told during that interview could not be material. That's the charitable view. To the extent it matters, I don't believe anything of what I just said. Uh, so it matters very much, and. 
I want to throw out there for any of you uh, one reason why I think the charitable view actually can't stand a moment's analysis. And that's that there is this discussion in the brief about how they may not be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Flynn had lied, quite apart from the materiality analysis. And in that discussion, they don't mention that Flynn twice admitted to it. Uh, that is, in the in open court and in his plea deal. And so I guess I'm a little bit flummoxed by the question of why they don't think it is adequate evidence that he has twice admitted to this in a fashion that I think would be admissible. Is that right, Chuck? Yeah. In fact, then to that point, were Judge Sullivan not to dismiss the case, but if he was to allow Flynn to withdraw the plea and this whole thing miraculously went to trial, which I don't think will ever happen because of course the president could always pardon Flynn before a trial. Um, But were it to go to trial, the admissions that Flynn made in open court under oath twice before a federal judge could be used against him. I'll tell you one other place to look, Ben. You're exactly right. Uh, Flynn's admissions when he pled guilty um, are admissible against him. They are statements against his interests. They are the admissions of a defendant. Uh, But also read pages 29 to 32 of volume two of the Mueller report which sets out in great detail precisely why these lies mattered a lot and to the president at the time that the president learned of the lies. So the Justice Department is now calling immaterial something that the president not only found material, but acted upon when he fired Flynn. Right. I want to talk about the materiality analysis. So first of all, Quinta, can you walk us through how the Justice Department got to the idea that Flynn's lies were not material. And then I, I, and then I want to focus in on what the consequence of that argument is. So the Justice Department has a sort of a long lead up to how it gets to this point that involves some sort of administrative back and forth within the Bureau. But I think the, the really key thing is that they look at the phone call between Flynn and Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak, uh, in which the two discuss the sanctions that the Obama administration had just levied on Russia in response to Russian election interference. And thanks to the Mueller report, we know that Flynn essentially told Kislyak that Russia may want to not respond and kind of play it cool, which is what Russia then did. And the Justice Department looks at that and says that this was not enough for the FBI to continue its investigation into Flynn, that this was not an adequate predicate for a counterintelligence or a criminal investigation. And then that allows the department to say, well, because this wasn't enough for the FBI to continue its investigation, Flynn's lie about that call in which he told the agents that he hadn't spoken with Kislyak can't have been material 
because there was no legitimate underlying investigation in the first place. So there's a lot wrong with that, and I'm sure we'll discuss it, but that's the sort of, that's the logic that the motion to dismiss lays out. All right. So I want to focus on one thing that strikes me as wrong with that, Susan, which is that if that analysis is right, it seems to legalize lying to the FBI under a fairly wide array of circumstances. That is, in any circumstance, in a counterintelligence investigation, in which you can later argue that the predication for the interview was insufficient, you should feel free to lie to the FBI. And so I'm wondering, like, I don't actually think that's an exaggeration at all. And so, Susan, walk us through what, in fact, the predication looked like in this case at the time the interview took place. Yeah, so I think you're right that that is sort of the logical outcome of the argument DOJ is advancing. The part that makes it so absurd is that there's not a legitimate question about predication. So DOJ's brief focuses a lot on the idea that there was a memo that was sort of drafted towards the end of the year in 2016 in which the FBI, having investigated as part of Crossfire Hurricane, these four individuals, Flynn, Carter Page, Manafort, and George Papadopoulos, uh, for their sort of relationship to uh, the active measures and this suggestion that there might have been hacked Hillary Clinton emails, and decided that what they found about Michael Flynn kind of didn't fit the bill for that. He, he didn't quite seem to match. And so they say, well, let's let's just close the let's close this. And, and they they write this memo and then they never take any action to sort of formally close it. And then this call pops up in December and January. And that changes things. So the reason they had been looking at Flynn before as sort of an initial suspect is because he had some ties, financial ties to Russian entities, and he'd had this sort of weird travel to Russia. Um, And they thought that was sort of suspicious. And when they looked at that in isolation, they decided it wasn't enough. There wasn't sort of, it didn't produce anything derogatory, you know, sort of additionally. Once you add the call, though, it doesn't mean that all that prior predication is wiped away it changes the way you look at it. So now you have this strange phone call that he has with Sergei Kislyak, a phone call that the incoming press secretary is lying about the substance of, and the incoming vice president is lying about the substance of. You have all of these past indicators of sort of something strange going on. And you have to ask yourself, is there an articulable factual basis to be concerned about a crime having been committed or a threat to national security? Basically, is there an issue that we need to resolve? The idea that at the moment that that they have this call, there's no articulable factual basis, is it just defies basic logic. Of course you would want to know, look, is Mike Flynn carrying out the weird policy, this incoming administration and the administration is just lying to the public about it. And that's not great, but they're allowed to do it. Is Mike Flynn lying to the president? Is he lying to the vice president? Is he being influenced by the Russians in some bizarre way? Is there a CI issue not with Flynn, but with Kislyak? Right. You have questions. And so the way you answer your questions is you sit down with a subject and you ask, And of course, it would shape the course of an investigation. 
if the if agents had sat down with Mike Flynn and he had said, yeah, yeah, uh, this is our new policy. We don't really care about these sanctions and don't worry about it if we're lying to the public. Um, you know, if the FBI had continued to pursue it based on sort of some thin Logan Act g- concerns, I, I think you would have sort of questions. But instead, what happens is Mike Flynn lies about it. And so then that exacerbates all of those underlying concerns and also creates the new concern that the the national security advisor has, of course, now lied to federal agents and the Russians know it. He's committed a crime. And so that's where I think just this whole suggestion of an absence of predication or that the lie about discussing sanctions on the call is immaterial just completely collapses. It doesn't even pass the initial laugh test. And I I do think it's worth noting that Sally Yates, when she testified publicly, was completely open about all of this, explained exactly why uh, the FBI had wanted to interview Flynn, had, had explained her concerns exactly. Jim Comey had been completely open about why exactly they'd interviewed Flynn. The Mueller report spelled this out. Nothing has changed. And at the time that this order of events was revealed, no one suggested this was uh, there was an absence of predication. No one suggested there wasn't a legitimate question. And now what DOJ is doing is sort of using this weird bureaucratic sort of formality of you can't you can't reopen a case that hasn't ever been closed. And that saves some paperwork as somehow breaking the chain of predications such that this was an impermissible interview and it becomes immaterial that, that Flynn lies. It's it's just absurd. Chuck, is there any doubt in your mind that there was predication for this interview? None. In fact, you know, Susan correctly, not surprisingly, articulated the standard, right, that there be a factual basis or that there be, you know, a, a reason to believe that uh, uh, there might be a national security threat to the country or that a crime has been committed. The whole notion of predication, the reason the FBI has that in their internal operating procedures is to make sure that cases aren't open for improper reasons based on someone's religion or national origin, right? Or on um, exercise of First Amendment rights. It is by design a low threshold. It is by design a low threshold because we want the FBI precisely in situations where we have questions about someone's conduct to investigate and ask logical questions. And so there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there was sufficient predication uh, there was, a, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind um, that there continued to be not just predication, but even more reason to uh, question Flynn once you had the tapes of the phone calls with Kislyak, and once you knew that Flynn had lied to the vice president, the incoming vice president, and other White House officials about the nature of those calls. If there's nothing wrong, why wouldn't you tell Vice President Pence the truth? And if there's something to hide, shouldn't the FBI figure out what that thing is? So what does, if you had to describe the predication that existed for the Flynn interview, how would you describe it? The Justice Department described, you know, its absence by disaggregating a whole set of facts from one another, right? They said, you know, the, the the predication for the first earlier investigation had lapsed and nothing new that had arisen uh, amounted to predication. So, you know, you've supervised these investigations. 
if you had been writing the predication memo, what are the reasonably articulable facts that justify sending a group of agents or a pair of agents to interview Mike Flynn? I'll give you one example. And it's sort of interesting the way the Shea memo uh, describes Flynn's conduct. Shea simply says Flynn traveled to Russia. Uh, He had done that before Trump became president. I forget precisely when that occurred. But it wasn't just that Flynn traveled to Russia. Flynn went to Russia. He took $40,000 from a um, Russian uh, state-controlled media organization. He dined with Putin at Putin's table at a banquet. Those facts alone, I think, are reasonable predication an articulable factual basis, as Susan said, to ask him what happened, particularly in light of the phone calls with Kislyak and the lies to the vice president. So look, you need predication to open the thing. You need predication to begin your investigation and to use whatever techniques the FBI is going to use. Once you have that predication and your investigation is open, have at it. Do whatever is lawful. Follow your guidelines. Conduct your interviews. I don't think you need to reassess your predication each and every day. Did you have it? Was it adequate? Could you articulate a factual basis for it? And if the answer to those questions is yes, go forth and investigate. And what if you've written a memo that says we haven't developed any derogatory information, so we should close this thing, but the memo's just sitting around and it hasn't been finalized and executed yet. So the investigation is formally still open, but in fact, you've concluded that you need to close it or you should close it. Let's be clear, Ben. You can open an investigation, you can close an investigation, and if you get new facts, you can reopen an investigation. So these were procedural issues, and I don't mean to diminish their importance, right? You don't work on a closed investigation, but the mere fact that it's closed doesn't prevent you from reopening it. Uh, I don't like the way that um, the FBI, two of the FBI employees described you know, the serendipity of the FBI failing to close an investigation it intended to close. It makes it sound nefarious when it's really not. The fact is that procedurally it had not been closed, and so you could continue to work on it. But if it had been closed, and don't please don't let me gloss over this point, if it had been closed, all you have to do is open it up again, assuming you have sufficient factual predication, and you do. And the new factual predication, to be clear, would be that this person who in 2015 had traveled to Russia and sat next to Putin at a banquet and been paid $40,000 by RT. Uh, This person who you'd kind of previously looked at for that stuff now finds himself on the phone with the Russian ambassador and requesting that the Russian ambassador take uh, some extraordinary policy steps, which the Russians then do, i.e. not escalate on sanctions, and that he proceeds then to lie about that to the vice president of the United States. You think that would amply, assuming the earlier investigation had been closed, you think that would amply predicate a new or reopening it? Yes, I do. And let me just, uh, to make a, a finer point, had they not questioned Flynn 
in light of those new facts, I think it would have been an absolute dereliction of duty. It would have been an inexcusable lapse in an FBI counterintelligence investigation not to confront him with what they had learned. All right. So let's go back then to my earlier question to Susan, which is, is the Justice Department now taking the position Basically, go ahead, lie to the FBI if you're a counterintelligence subject and you think there's some and, you know, and you think you may be able to argue later that, you know, what they had on you didn't justify them showing up. You should feel free to lie to them. I do think they're taking that position. And and I actually think they're getting even dangerously close to even a, a more extreme position, which is that Bill Barr's suggestion in subsequent interviews and sort of the intimation and in the briefing based on the conversation about the Logan Act, that, that a 1001 violation that ends up uh, in the course of an investigation in which ultimately the government determines no crime was committed is somehow not a standalone criminal offense, right? That's the exact opposite of the government's longstanding position. There are lots and lots of famous examples of people who, in the course of being investigated for things that turn out not to be crimes, lie to investigators, and that's how they get themselves in trouble. You know, I think Martha Stewart is one of sort of the um, uh, the most well-known examples of that. And, you know, so I, I do think that they are taking this sort of astonishing position. And if I was an AUSA across the the country, I would be prepared for all kinds of defense motions quoting this brief. Um, and, and the government now will have to argue for, you know, factual distinctions and why this actually isn't, you know, the, the new position of the department. But I think they're going to have a really, really difficult time doing so. And, and I think sort of the, the core of the issue here is that if Bill Barr just wanted to make the argument that, hey, if I was attorney general uh, or if I was the FBI director, I wouldn't have pursued this interview. And as a policy matter, even though that there was there was predication, as a policy matter, I think they should have backed off or I think they should have handled this differently. Um, and, and I would have done things differently. If you wanted to sort of acknowledge it as a as a policy distinction um, or, or difference, you know, sort of uh, difference in judgment. That's one thing. But instead, in order to sustain this, you know, really unusual move of dropping charges, he tries to frame it in this in sort of the, the language of of legal misconduct, right, and, and government malfeasance. And, and by doing so, he has invited uh, courts and defendants across the country, um, you know, to, to walk through that door and say, hey, look, the government has an obligation now to prove the predication that existed at the time of the interview. Um, and, and potentially they even have the obligation to somehow prove that based on what was known at the time, uh, you know, that there actually was a crime that could have been prosecuted at the end of the day. And I, I think this is going to be just a real headache moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, Quinto, where is the case now, at least as I, so far as I've seen, the judge has not granted this motion to dismiss yet. Nope. So as of uh, mid-afternoon on Friday, we are still waiting to see what Judge Sullivan will do. And Chuck, I to go back to things that I've never seen before, I have never seen a case where the government moves to dismiss and a court says no. 
On the other hand, Judge Sullivan is really annoyed visibly, like in his rulings, and he's very annoyed at the games that Flynn has been playing in his court. And to see the Justice Department jump on board on those games and do a sort of bait and switch on this whole case on him must be very galling to the judge. So, I I mean, I don't want you to try to get inside Judge Sullivan's head. He's an independent mind. But what is his latitude here? And, you know, what are his options? Does he just have to salute and dismiss the case? Or does he have the ability to question this in any significant way? What are you expecting to see from Judge Sullivan? I've spent years in front of federal judges, Ben, and uh, if I've learned anything, it's that they have the ability to question anything they want, whenever they want, uh, and they're typically not shy about it. So Rule 48 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure uh, is what the Department of Justice invoked to try and have the case dismissed. It requires leave of the court, but Rule 48 doesn't articulate any standard for the court to apply. But I imagine that Judge Sullivan, and I, I, I will not try and get into his head uh, too deeply, is going to want to know that this is being done for an appropriate reason, right? I mean, you can't dismiss a case for an inappropriate reason, to buy more time, to further investigate, to, you know, you can't charge to stop the statute of limitations from running and then dismiss and then recharge when you've accumulated more evidence. So the courts always have an interest in making sure there's an appropriate reason. The problem here is that both the defendant, Flynn, and the government are on the same side of the issue. How might a judge handle that? Well, he could question the government lawyers uh, in the well of his courtroom. He could even appoint a special counsel or special master um, to articulate the other side of the case. By the way, he did something like that, not perfectly like that, but like that uh, in the Ted Stevens case, where he appointed a special investigator slash special prosecutor to take a close look at how the government conducted itself in the Stevens investigation, uh, because Judge Sullivan felt he needed somebody to help him uh, acquire information that a court can't really acquire all by itself. Um, and so, you know, there are several possibilities short of simply saying, you both want this case dismissed, done, so ordered, and walking away. One person that if I were Judge Sullivan, I would want to hear from is a gentleman named Brandon Van Grack, who uh, worked for Bob Mueller and helped bring this case and has then was Uh, sent back to the Justice Department from which he had been detailed and has maintained this case the entire time until this week when he moved to withdraw from it, presumably because he did not appreciate the motion that uh, Mr. Shea was about to file. I assume in connection with his own motion to withdraw from the case and in connection with uh, his consideration of this motion, the judge could hear from Brandon von Grack. Is that right? Sure. I mean, the ju- well, the judge can order anyone uh, to his courtroom as he sees fit. Now, here's the interesting thing. And we've seen this issue in other ways with this administration. They've not made members of the executive branch available 
uh, to the Congress. They've asserted absolute immunity in some cases to preclude witnesses from testifying at hearings. I don't know how the administration would react to an order from a federal district court judge demanding the appearance of an executive branch employee. And that is what Mr. Van Grack is, after all. Uh, It could be an interesting standoff. The one thing I have learned about this administration is that the unexpected uh, is to be expected. On the other hand, he is an officer of the court with a pending motion in the court himself, right, to withdraw. Presumably, having made an appearance in the court, the court has jurisdiction to, you know, ask him to give information in connection with his own motion to withdraw from a case, right? Yeah, presumably. I mean, that is logical, Ben. That makes sense to me. But, um, you know, as we've seen with the government's pleading uh, from yesterday, uh, they don't always take sensible and honest positions, not in this administration. All right. Quinta, we have another set of questions about Mr. Flynn which is all the stuff about Flynn that the government did not prosecute as a consequence of this plea agreement. Uh, And one of the things that to me is so galling about this is Flynn actually got a pretty sweet deal, right? He had, uh, at the time that he was uh, reached this plea agreement, there were a number of FARA questions about him, uh, of Foreign Agents Registration Act questions. There were some other questions about him, and none of those got prosecuted as a consequence of his pleading down to this one false statements charge that the government has now moved to dismiss. So remind us what the other questions were about Mike Flynn, some of which get pretty weird. Sure. So uh, the first issue and the one that I think has probably gotten the most attention has to do with work by Flynn as a alleged unregistered agent of a foreign power for the government of Turkey. And this sort of weirdest manifestation of this has to do with a op-ed that Flynn ran in The Hill the day of the 2016 election, basically advocating for a number of policies that were also favored by the Turkish government. And so um, as part of Flynn's plea agreement regarding the charges about lying to federal investigators, he also acknowledged that he hadn't registered as a foreign agent um, as he should have for his lobbying for Turkey. The other portion uh, Flynn's conduct, which I, I don't believe shows up on the plea agreement, is a truly bizarre plan that, according to the Wall Street Journal, Mueller was investigating, where Flynn essentially appears to have been working, or his consulting group, including his son, was working to possibly illegally render uh, Fatullah Gulen, who's a Muslim cleric who lives in Pennsylvania, to Turkey on behalf of the Turkish government um, without going through any formal channels. So that is a truly bizarre instance. Um, I think I'm sure Czech can list the number of potential 
issues regarding criminal liability that could pop up if that were indeed uh, confirmed to be true. But there's nothing about that in any of the court documents. And so it really does seem like the Justice Department is kind of just letting him skate on that. All right. So here's my question about this, Chuck. Assume for a minute that Emmett Sullivan salutes smartly and dismisses the false statements case. And let's assume he dismisses it as the government has requested with prejudice, meaning that it cannot be filed again. Now Joe Biden wins the presidency and Chuck Rosenberg is his designee for attorney general. Highly unlikely. uh, Which I, I would personally advocate for. So now you are the attorney general. It is January 21st. Uh, you have been confirmed in ab- advance. A, are you bound by the plea agreement? Does the plea agreement stand, though the Justice Department has moved to dismiss the one case it is allowed to prosecute, and you are forbidden from looking at the Farah stuff or the kidnapping plot or Michael Flynn Jr., anything that the anything that the plea agreement immunizes, does that still bind you? Or conversely, does the plea agreement go away once the government and Flynn have agreed that he shouldn't be prosecuted for the one thing that he'd pled to under this agreement? And if you are allowed to reopen the investigation of Mike Flynn, is it appropriate to do it, given the the bizarreness of what the Justice Department has done here, or is a non-pros decision by the prior administration something that you would feel bound by, even if it's done under these, you know, tawdry conditions? Well, Ben, first, thank you for six really, really hard questions. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of lined them up, but I did promote you to AG. I mean. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not so sure how I feel about that either. <laughs> but a lot of it would turn, I think, on exactly how Judge Sullivan writes his order. So if he dismisses the 1001 false statements charge with prejudice, then that charge can't be brought back by anybody for any reason. That might mean, and we'd have to take a hard look at it, that the plea agreement just sort of falls by the wayside, but that the admissions that Flynn made in the plea agreement, you know, agreeing that he had lied to the FBI, acknowledging that he had been an unregistered agent uh, for Turkey, remain. Those have those are were things that he um, said in open court. Those are things that he acknowledged in writing with his own signature, and those things would live on. And so, theoretically, could another attorney general? not me, uh, bring those charges back, uh, assuming that the statute of limitations had not run on them? I think the answer is yes. That's my sort of my, my gut answer. But you asked a really important question as well. Would it be appropriate to bring those charges? And that's a hard question. If I can just give you one um, sort of lesson from history. When Gerald Ford, and I know this is on a sort of a different procedural posture, uh, pardoned Richard Nixon, you know, uh, and Nixon resigned the presidency. Ford was excoriated um, by editorialists around the country and by members of Congress uh, for granting that pardon. 
Uh, it was seen as a cover-up, as a favor that it had been prearranged. But Ford explained in testimony to the Congress um, that what he wanted to do was move forward and not look back, that there were significant problems uh, that the United States had to address as a country. He hoped to do it under his presidency and that uh, sort of you know continuing to swim in the Nixon pool didn't make a lot of sense. One of the senators who excoriated uh, Ford for that was uh, Ted Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts. Interestingly, more than a quarter of a century later, in 2001, the summer of 2001, before the 9-11 attacks, Ted Kennedy presented to Gerald Ford at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage Award. Kennedy said, Ford was right. I was wrong. I changed my mind. Over time, I came to see the wisdom of what he did, that as a nation, we need to move forward. And it's an interesting thing to reflect on. You know, what are we going to do if there's a new administration uh, with all of these cases that have been undermined by the Department of Justice, uh, with all of these people that have been, you know, let go in one way or another or treated more favorably, not just Flynn, but perhaps also uh, Roger Stone uh, or Paul Manafort? You know, how do we think about that as a country moving forward? And the Ford model, no pun intended, gives us an important way to think about it. But there is a big difference between the Ford model and the Bill Barr model here. Agreed. I agree. And I want to be blunt about what it is, which is the Ford model was not corrupt. And I don't mean corrupt in the sense of taking bribes, but I, I mean in the sense of being, you know, while people thought it was a cover-up, over time, people came to understand that it was a good faith judgment about the best way to move forward. Uh, it was also one for which he was politically accountable. Uh, he probably lost the 1976 election because of it. By contrast, the entire gist of this conversation has been that this is a decision that is deviant from the traditions of the Justice Department not defensible on its merits and not factually accurate. And the question that I don't really know how to think about the answer to is how much deference does one administration owe the other, uh, the prior one, under those circumstances? I'm just curious for both of your thoughts on, on yeah. the answer to that question. So, Ben, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is a very different set of factors. There is no evidence, none, that uh, Ford was corrupt. In fact, it was a judgment that he made, and he was politically accountable for it. Another important difference, Nixon resigned the presidency, right? We certainly don't have that sort of you know, situation here. Nixon left voluntarily. Um, he would have been likely um, you know, uh, convicted in the Senate uh, and removed from office, but he resigned. So I take your point that it's different factually, but there is a lesson that remains, which is that Ford saw the need to move forward and not look back. And I admire that. I've always admired that about Gerald Ford. I think he had it exactly right. What does a successor administration owe to a predecessor administration? Well, if, it, if the predecessor administration made judgments that were not corrupt and were sort of tethered to the rule of law, I think they owe them a great amount of deference. It is different here. I acknowledge that. And it's a really, really hard question to answer. 
Would you use the word corrupt to describe this decision? Yes, I would. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah, uh, so it would strikes, I. It strikes me as corrupt. Um, at, at the very least, the reason they've articulated is corrupted, meaning it's deeply, deeply flawed. Whether or not you know someone got paid off as a result of it, I don't believe that to be the case. I have no evidence to support that. That's the more traditional notion of corrupt, but it is at best corrupted. What are your thoughts, Quinta, if the next administration comes in and would you want it to revisit all of these questions and treat it like it's December 2017 from the point of view of prosecuting Mike Flynn? He's a guy who had a chance to reach a plea agreement. He didn't reach it. They should throw the book at him and bring the case they would have brought had he not reached the plea agreement that he then scotched? Or do you do what a normal administration does and you say the people elected the Trump administration for the period it was in office, they made different judgments than we would have made, but we're not going to treat the period as sufficiently aberrant that we're going to revisit all their prosecutorial judgments? It's a really complicated question, as Chuck says, and I, I, because there are so many variables among them, ironically, the, the extent to which a president should be involved in making that decision or the extent to which it should be left to independent law enforcement, if, if such a thing exists at that point. I want to focus on, I think, the underlying issue, which goes back to this question of corrupted decision making that, that Chuck rang up and the comparison to the Ford pardon. I mean, I think Chuck is absolutely right that it's it's impossible not to keep that in mind here. And it is also important that, as as both of you have pointed out, Nixon resigned. And in pardoning Nixon, Ford was not arguing that his predecessor was railroaded, that, you know, Watergate was fine, any of that. It's if you read his remarks on the pardon of Nixon, it's more essentially saying this is he calls it a national tragedy. You know, this terrible thing happened to heal. We need to move on. I think the the difference here is that what I would argue Barr is engaged in is an attempt to rewrite the history of what happened in the Russia investigation. I I don't think it's a coincidence that the language Barr is using here, or the language that the Justice Department is using in the motion really tiptoes right up to the edge of suggesting, uh, though not stating explicitly, that the Russia investigation as a whole was illegitimate. I think that the very extreme argument that the call with Kislyak was not an adequate predicate to investigate Flynn is kind of like saying everything that the campaign did vis-a-vis -vis Russia was fine. Um, it's not quite saying that, but it's it's moving close to that argument of sort of not no collusion, but collusion was awesome. And I think that when you end up in a situation where 
the federal government and the Justice Department have engaged in this effort to sort of rewrite history to this extent, it is much harder than for the next administration to come in and say, we're going to move on because people don't even believe or don't even agree on the question, move on from what? And the the sort of restorative justice that Ford was advocating in Nixon's case as a form of healing is only possible if the wound is something that can be closed. And I think that what Barr is doing here is ripping the wound back open again. And so the the two situations strike me as, as very different in that way. And for that reason, if there is a Biden administration, I think that distinction will have to play into whatever decision making the Justice Department makes. Yeah. So I just want to inject, step out of my moderator role here and inject my own opinion on the subject, which is that I have two very strong instincts. Number one, that the proper role for Joe Biden to play in this question is zero, except insofar as he may have to decide whether to pardon somebody. But the the only role he should play is to appoint an attorney general and then let that attorney general handle it in the in the highest traditions of the justice department but my second instinct is that i want the attorney general to be somebody who both shares my rage at this and who feels a very strong pull to walking into court and proving what can be proven and and litigating these cases aggressively and also somebody who equally feels how deviant that would be from some of the justice department's actual traditions in this and i want somebody to be attorney general who in a way that we've never had that we've really never had to do before is going to feel and experience the war between those two very, very legitimate instincts. I'll just say that that's very uh, Plato-like of you, Ben, is that the the person in charge needs to be the person who doesn't want to be in charge for the purpose for which they're in charge. I, I mean, I I would not trust somebody who said what Kamala Harris said when she was running for president, which is, I, I think we should just prosecute him, meaning Trump. And I think that was a a wholly inappropriate thing for her to say. And I like somebody who simply has that reaction is not being supple enough about the traditions of the department, but somebody who does not feel the difference between this situation and prior situations where you are simply too willing to let prior wrong decisions stand I'm also a little bit wary of that. And so I understanding that those are two positions that are, you know, I actually want somebody who feels conflicted about this and I'm happy, I'm willing to live with a variety of different outcomes, but I want a serious balancing of those equities. Chuck, I want to finish with a question that Quinta teased about rewriting history. Bill Barr was kind of asked about this last night how he thought history would would judge this decision. 
And he kind of smirked and said, well, history's written by the winners, so we have to see who wins. I'm curious for your reaction to that comment by Bill Barr about this decision. Yeah, I didn't see the interview, but I read the transcript of it. And I was uh, very deeply disturbed by that. It was smug and snarky. It was unbecoming uh, any high official of the United States government, let alone the attorney general. You know, we have always been a rule of law nation. There have been exceptions. There have been egregiously bad Supreme Court decisions. You know, Plessy v. Ferguson and Dred Scott and Korematsu come immediately to mind. We are not perfect, but we are one hell of a lot better than the uh, vision that the Attorney General of the United States articulated on CBS last night. We're going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Susan Hennessy, who dropped off along the way. Chuck Rosenberg, thanks so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Hey, guys, I need you to help me out on this one. You know, everybody's stuck at home with coronavirus. They are thinking about what should I be listening to? And, you know, there are billions of people in the world and only about 35,000 of them know to download the Lawfare Podcast. And that's because you have not tweeted about the Lawfare Podcast, posted this episode of the Lawfare Podcast on Facebook, upvoted it on Reddit, or pinned it on Pinterest. So I want you to go out there and aggressively share the Lawfare Podcast. I want you to leave us a review if you haven't already. I want you to rate us wherever you found us. I want you to go to the Lawfare Store and buy Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. I want you to say thank you to Jen Patya Howell, who produced and edited the Lawfare podcast, as well as to the folks at Goat Rodeo, particularly Ian Enright, who recorded it. I want you to say a deep thanks to Sophia Yan, whose notes you are hearing as she plays us out of the Lawfare podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.